It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not know, now realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, side eye to Judas. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thanks, Terry. Okay, so as I say, it's um, Valentine's Day coming up on Tuesday. Um, For some people, not all of us, I know Andrew's not over keen on Valentine's Day, sorry to break the news there, but for some of us it's a time to um, think about romantic love and showing appreciation to each other, Um, whether that be your mum or your your partner, or whoever that might be. It can be a difficult time for people as well, but it does tend to be a time when we think about romantic love. But when it comes to the love of Jesus, as we heard in that passage just then, it's a much greater type of love. It's a humility, a servitude type of love that is, is, is far above romantic love, far greater than romantic love, what he did for us and what he did for everybody in the world. Um, and it's something that's known as agape love. Okay, so what is agape love? Well, agape love is the highest form of love spoken of in the Bible. And it's often defined as this. It's the highest form of love. It's selfless, sacrificial and unconditional love. Love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstances. And that's what we see happening in the passage that we just just read there, that Terry just read there. Okay, so let's just work through this passage verse by verse. So we read in, uh, in verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now this gives us a good bit of context for what we're going to be reading in this passage. Um, it's always important with Bible verses to have that context so we know what's happening. If somebody reads you out a, a short Bible verse and doesn't give you any context, it can be taken out of context. So it's important to understand what's happening here, when it's happening, 
so that we can get an idea about what, it's actually, what it actually means. Um, so we see in the first verse a reminder that this illustration is going to be about Jesus' love. He loved his own who were in the world and that he would love them till the end. So we get a, an idea here that what's the next few verses are going to be about that love. And we also find out about the timing of what happened here. It's a uh, time, it's the Passover time and it's Jesus' final Passover. Um, it's just as he's about to go to the cross. So he knew that he was returning to God, as it says there, and that time was tight. He didn't have very long with his disciples. And his disciples were still struggling to get, come to terms with the idea and they didn't really understand the fact that he was going away. It didn't really quite, sort of the penny hadn't particularly dropped yet. But this was a chance for him to kind of show his love for them, but also to give, him an, give them an example and give them the final teachings they'd need to be able to survive on their own without him. Because they were going to, once he was gone, obviously it was going to be a big shock to them. So um, he was giving them teachings that would prepare them for being on their own. Okay, so if we continue on in the passage, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So one of the interesting things in that passage, I think, is that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And Jesus knew exactly what was happening here. It wasn't a surprise when Judas betrayed him. But he knew everything had been put under his power. So at this point, he should be feeling pretty powerful. He should be feeling, you, you, you wouldn't, you'd forgive him for feeling proud or, you know, that he was in control of the whole situation. But in fact, what we see here in this verse is the complete opposite of that. He's, he's actually humbling himself in an incredible way. The king of the universe is actually putting himself down to the role of a servant. In Jesus' time, the role of feet washing would have been done, something that was done by the lowest of the low, it would have been done by servants. It wouldn't have been done by the master of the house, it wouldn't have been done by teachers, it certainly wouldn't have been done by Pharisees, and it certainly wouldn't have been done by Jesus in the eyes of the disciples. It was also quite a dirty job in Jesus' time, you know, if we were to wash each other's feet, if we only came around for an evening meal, although that might seem a slightly unpleasant job for some people, it would still be a lot easier job because we have shoes so the worst we're going to get is a bit sweaty feet or smelly feet but we're not going to have the sort of dirt that would be on the disciples feet because they'd be walking through dusty streets in sandals um, and so there would be mud or there would be dirt built up so it was a it was a dirty job reserved for servants and but what Jesus does is he turns turns this custom on its head and for the disciples it would have been kind of almost horrifying almost cringeworthy to see their leader, their teacher, their Lord, submitting himself to wash their feet. It just goes against all sorts of um, human logic, really. But Jesus is showing that he's not only willing to be equal to us, to come down from his throne in heaven to live life like us, but he's willing to actually put himself below others in a, in a totally selfless act of servant, service, which is indeed agape love. So that's one aspect of what's been taught in this passage, but there's also a symbolic meaning. You know, this is showing us, or giving us a... It's, for, it's foreshadowing and giving us an idea of the sort of servitude that Jesus is going to do in a much, much bigger way for all mankind on the cross in the next couple of days. 
Um, so it's pointing towards that. And it's, it's kind of hinting to the disciples that something much bigger is to come. And Jesus has made this link between service and sacrifice and um, his eventual death on the cross and his resurrection in Mark 10, 43 to 45 which says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. The Son of Man did not, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you can see the same, exactly the same sort of stuff here. Jesus came not to be served by people, but to serve them. And ultimately that would result in giving his life on the cross. But for the disciples, he's just putting that idea into their minds to make them realise what he's going to, the importance of what he's going to be doing when he goes to the cross in the next couple of days, because it's very hard for them to get their heads around that. It's basically not the foot washing, but going to the cross is ultimately the, the ultimate self-sacrifice. Jesus, who is fully God, sacrificing himself for the good of, of many. We see a similar thing said in 1 Peter 3:18. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The key words there, I think, are the just for the unjust. Just as washing feet for the king of the universe is the wrong way around, so is Jesus dying for us. You know, the, a totally righteous man, a man who is fully God, dying for us who hadn't even turned to him at the time. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's go back to our core passage. And we read on, it says, Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part in me. Now, the interesting thing here is that Jesus says, sort of backing up the comment that I just said there, that he was saying they wouldn't realise now what he's doing. This wouldn't have the significance until he went to the cross, until he showed them that this servitude and this washing was all about what he was about to do in the next couple of days. I think we can kind of uh, really just understand what Peter is saying there. You know, he's, he's quite right in a way. There is no reason why Jesus Christ should be washing his feet. There is no reason why he's worthy for Jesus to do that. And there is no reason why we are worthy for Jesus to put down his life to us. And it seems like a humble thing that Peter's doing when he's saying that. But in actual fact, in a way, it's pride uh, that he's showing there. Because it is very hard for us, I think, in any situation, to accept charity. Sometimes it can be difficult for us to accept that we need something or that we need somebody. It requires humility to accept somebody to do an act of sacrifice for you, an act of servitude. I think it's, it can be borne out. I think Irish, Irish people will understand it because there's an Irish custom where everybody wants to be the one who pays for the meal or who does something. So you, you'll find yourself, I don't know if you've found yourself in a situation where you're sort of throwing money at each other because you're saying, I don't know, I, I want to pay, I want to pay. And you're, you're fighting over the notes. And it's very hard and it, it almost comes to blows in a, at a point where you're, you're just trying to be the one who pays for the meal. You want to be the one who's doing the act of servitude. No one wants to accept that. So in a way, it requires humility for us to accept it. And particularly as Christians, 
we have to accept Jesus' death on the cross. We have to accept that he did it for us. We have to accept that there is no way we can do it ourselves. There is no way we can wash away our own sin. We need Jesus. If we don't humble ourselves and allow him to wash us, if we don't allow him to take away our sin, then it's no good. Because we can't do it ourselves. We can't wash away our sins. Only Jesus can do that. And we need to accept that. Um, and in a much smaller way, in this act that, that uh, Jesus is doing now, Peter has to submit to Jesus in this act of selflessness. But then, of course, Peter, being quite an emotional person, as we know, he, um, he kind of goes to the other extreme. He says, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. So note that Jesus talks about the rest of the body being clean. And this is, again, another historical reference. Um, just as the foot washing was something which happened in the time. So this was a factual statement. Because what Jesus was saying was when people went to a meal in that time, they would likely have a wash and they would change their clothes and they would be clean but of course as they walked to the house where they were going they would get a bit of mud and a bit of dirt on their feet so the rest of the body actually is clean but the feet still need to be washed so it's a historical reference and it's literal but at the same time there must be a bigger meaning because he talks about Judas here now we can come to two conclusions. Either Judas didn't have a wash and was a bit smelly that night, or maybe Judas had fallen over on the journey and had got dirty and so he wasn't clean. But I don't think that's what's happening. In fact, it, it says in the passage that's not the case because Judas was not clean because he was going to betray him. So there's a, this symbolic meaning here. He talks about the disciples being clean and only needing their feet washed. But what does that mean? What's, what's the symbology behind that? I think that's, that's pretty good, Claire. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I believe that Jesus, one, one explanation of this is that Jesus is talking about the relationship between faith and salvation on the cross. Judas wasn't clean because his betrayal proved that he wasn't actually a believer in Christ after all. He might have followed him around, he might have seemed to be a follower, but in actual fact he didn't have faith. He was going to betray him, he was going to sell Jesus out. And the rest of the disciples, they did have that faith. They believed, they had that faith, that faith that you need to be saved. But there was also one other thing that needed to happen. Jesus needed to go to the cross and he needed to die for our sins. We can have faith, but if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, it's no good. It's this relationship between the two things. You need faith... All you need, you just need faith and you need the cross. The two things working together are what give us salvation. Of course, naturally works will come from being saved as Jesus purifies us, as we go through life and as, as, as we show that through the fruits of the Spirit. But even that's done by God. The fact is all we need is faith and the cross and those two things. And unfortunately for Judas, he didn't have one of those things. Jesus did go to the cross, but without faith, it was no good for him. So we require Jesus to wash away our sin once and for all. And that makes us, with our faith, it makes us fully clean.
So that's one example of what it could mean. But another, a lot of people also say that there's another meaning in this. And that this representation is about Jesus going to the cross. He's, he's saved us once and for all, if we believe. But throughout our lives, we also require this continual cleansing of our sin. As we walk through the world, we're going to gather dirt and gather sin in our lives because we are, at the end of the day, hopeless sinners. We're always going to, we're always going to gather those things. So we require Jesus to continually just wash away that sin. And he does that. And God sanctifies us. He makes us better. He refines us. And though we're never going to get perfect until we face God, and God just sees Jesus in us, we're going to be continually washed and continually cleaned on our journey with him. So that's one thing we can learn from this passage. Perhaps the biggest message from it, though, comes at the end. So when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So is this literally talking about a continuing of foot washing? Is this something that we should do? And we are going to be having a meal later, so maybe we should get out the foot baths and wash each other's feet. Well, you'll be pleased to know that I don't think this is what this is actually saying, and I don't think we'll be doing this today. There are some Christians who do this, who do wash each other's feet because they believe it's quite literal, and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong in doing that, um, as long as you're not doing it for a work, in a work sense of the, the word. But no, I believe this is more of a command that's telling us just to show the same humility that Jesus is showing here, to serve one another, to lay down ourselves for the good of everybody else and to do it equally. Because I've, I believe he reveals that not just in this verse here, but in the, the end of the verse coming up here, the end of the passage. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He's basically saying, if I, your Lord and Master, you rightly say that I'm your Lord and Master, and if I'm willing to wash your feet for you, then is it asking too much for you to be able to do that for each other? You know, and you'll notice there isn't a hierarchy in what he's saying here. He's not saying, oh, Peter's going to wash all your feet, or John's going to wash everybody else's feet. He's saying you'll do it for each other. So it's something we can really learn about. It's about helping one another. It's about loving and serving one another. And yes, there will be times when there'll be a greater need from some people in our church community than others and that we will humble ourselves to help people. But it's very much a two-way thing. There isn't one group of people serving and one group of people receiving. Jesus is explaining to them that the example that he's setting is so that they should do it for one another. It's kind of the opposite of what the world, how the world looks at things. You know, the world is very much about everyone for themselves. But in Jesus' way, it's about everybody working for everybody else. You're not looking at your selfish ambitions or your selfish motives. You're looking at the needs for other people. And, you know, yes, it's wonderful to be able to give gifts to people on Valentine's Day. Hopefully, though, we'll be treating each other well outside of those times and we're not just giving gifts and then being horrible to people for the rest of the time. Hopefully it's something that we do throughout the year. But 
while that's nice and why romantic love is nice, there is a much greater love and that is agape love. Jesus could have come to that meal and he could have just given them a gift. He could have given them some flowers or he could have given them you know, some chocolates or something like that. But that wouldn't have had the same impact. It wouldn't have been the same example. It wouldn't have been so memorable. It is good to do that sort of thing. But Jesus' servant attitude is a much, much greater gift. It's almost like it's not the thought that counts, it's the action that counts. And Jesus' action, he always walked the walk while he was living his life. And ultimately, when he died on the cross, it was an incredible example. He was walking the walk. He was doing the action. You know, this church is, I think, a very good church when it comes to love. I think there's a lot of love in this church. But imagine if we all did this all the time. Imagine if we never thought about ourselves. Because at the end of the day, we don't need to think about ourselves because Jesus has done it for us. He's sorted us. We're we're fine. We don't need to worry about ourselves. We don't need to work towards anything. We just need to start thinking about other people. And if we did that consistently, and we everybody did it in this church, what an irresistible church this would be. What an incredible place this would be. And I think it is already is an incredible place. But how much better it would be if we all did this. And it's something that we'd all struggle with. Every one of us. You know, it's easy for me to say these words. Thankfully, Lorraine's out of the room, so she can't pick me up. But she might watch it later and say, oh, are you doing that for me all the time? So we need to look at ourselves and we need to think, you know, how can we do better? But in fact, it's not even really about that because... Looking at ourselves is not what this is about. This is looking for the need out there. There are needs out there. There will always be needs in a church. And we need to look for those needs, forget about ourselves, put down our egos, put down our self-interests, and look for the need of others to help them. So we're constantly, all of us, serving one another. And it might not necessarily be in plain sight. You might not know that somebody is doing this. They might be doing it in secret, which is what the Bible tells us to do. It's not about the showy things that we might do. It's about stuff we do outside of church. It's about stuff we do for each other, which nobody else may know about. Those are the important things. It might be just inviting people to church. It might be discipling someone. It might be helping them with their faith. All the things that we don't see are as important, if not more important, than the stuff we see in church on a Sunday. And if you don't see enough love around here, if you feel you... you, you if you, you're moaning about people not showing enough love in the church and, you know, it should be better and so on. Well, the good news is that you're perfectly placed to do something about it because God has given us the power to show love without having it reciprocated necessarily. So every single one of us has the ability to start spreading that love and showing that love before somebody else does it necessarily. We can show that love. We can take it into our own hands So it's not something we can moan about, but it's something that we can do ourselves. We can change it. We can make a difference. Love generally does get reciprocated. If you love somebody, they generally love you back. And one of the few examples of that not being the case is through Jesus Christ, where actually he loved us before we'd even turned to him. He loved us while we were still sinners. He showed us love. And that's what we should do. Regardless of whether somebody's going to love us back, we need to show that love to people. So as Jesus said in the passage, he has set an example for us to follow. Not just in washing the disciples' feet, but in the next couple of days, he laid down literally everything for us. 
So seeing that the God of the universe has laid down his life for us while we were still sinners, shouldn't we do the same or less? I mean, the disciples had to literally lay down their lives in the end. People were martyred. People went to prison for the love of the brethren. I don't know if necessarily in these times, I mean, it is kind of, everybody talks about it being the end times. I don't know if we'll necessarily have to lay down our lives for each other. But what we can at least do through the love for what Jesus did for us and the fact that he did give his life for all of us, the least we can do is show love for one another and put others ahead of ourselves. And that really is what agape love is all about. And it's what true, amazing agape love looks like. So just to sum up what we've learned today, we have an incredible king, a really incredible king who lowered himself to become a servant. He put himself lower than us, even though we don't deserve it. He came not to be served, but to serve, just as we should live our lives with a servant attitude to serve others. And he did that in his life. He lived this out in his life and he lived it out ultimately on the cross. Even when he was being spat at, even when he was being abused by the people he came to save, he carried it through and he continued to show them love even in the face of extreme hatred. This ultimate act of sacrifice on the cross, which was made once and for all, when we combine it with faith, that is all we need. And natural works will follow through the work of the Holy Spirit so that we may not boast. And also God and Jesus will continue to wash away our sins because we need him to just wash away those sins daily as we walk through life. And he'll be there for us and he will sanctify us and he will improve us. And so we need to show gratitude for that. Jesus is our example of how to love one another, to live a life of surrender, to serve one another and lay down ourselves and our own, our own, uh, our own thoughts and our own everything that we, uh, we feel about ourselves and just to put others first. We need to put others first, to put them first and to follow Jesus' example of being humble and having a servant attitude.